Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, October 3rd, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, the first sales results are in for the third quarter. Tesla reveals its humanoid robot, and the head of Stellantis expects the chip crunch to continue through next year. Plus, in his final interview as Ford's Chief Industrial Platform Officer, Hao Tai Tang talks about his decision to retire and why he doesn't expect to make a comeback anytime soon. I'm not looking forward to going back to working 80 hours a week. If I wanted to do that, I would stay at Ford, right? I, I wouldn't want to do that anywhere else. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. U.S. sales at Toyota, Hyundai, Kia, and Subaru rose in September as the auto industry's inventory woes continued to ease. Toyota posted its first increase in monthly sales since July of last year, with volume rising last month by 17%. Still, Toyota's third quarter U.S. sales slipped more than 7% to just over 526,000, leaving General Motors as the top seller in the period and year-to-date by healthy margins. Third quarter volume surged at GM. Sales jumped about a quarter, helped by higher inventory. Among the company's four brands, only Buick posted lower sales during the period, with volume down 27%. In addition to strong retail demand for SUVs, crossovers, and pickups, GM said fleet deliveries rose 66% last quarter. Hyundai brand sales volume rose 11% last month to just under 60,000. The brand was up over 3% in the third quarter and down about 10% for the year to date. Stellantis reported a 6% drop in third quarter sales in the U.S. That's its fifth straight decline. The automaker's biggest brand, Jeep, posted an 18% decline during the period, largely behind a 53% slump in deliveries of its biggest seller, the Grand Cherokee. Honda's woes continued, with September volume skidding 17%, while Nissan's third quarter sales dropped 23%. Turning to global sales results, Tesla set a record for deliveries in the third quarter. It delivered nearly 344,000 EVs, a 42% increase from a year earlier. But the big jump didn't meet analysts' hopes, and the company's stock fell today. The company released a statement saying it has become challenging to secure vehicle transportation capacity and at a reasonable cost. Meanwhile, Elon Musk and Tesla kicked off the weekend by unveiling the company's humanoid robot, Optimus. While an experimental version walked out on stage to greet the crowd, a more streamlined current version that Musk said was closer to what he hoped to put into production had to be rolled out on a platform. It did a slow wave to the crowd. That did not dampen Musk's predictions for the robot. I think Optimus is going to be incredible in like five years, 10 years, like mind-blowing. Musk and Tesla engineers also updated the crowd about the progress of its so-called full self-driving technology. I think from a technical standpoint, it will be ready to go to a worldwide beta by the end of this year. And there's quite a big improvement that we're expecting to release next month that will be especially good at assessing the velocity of, of fast-moving cross-traffic and, and a bunch of other things. Musk also unofficially updated Tesla's mission statement, which aims to accelerate sustainable energy. He says the advent of Optimus brings the company into a new era of, quote, making the future awesome. And whether it's making cars and trucks or AI humanoid robots, manufacturers are going to need chips, chips, and more chips 
but the semiconductor crunch will probably last through next year. That's according to Stellantis CEO Carlos Tavares. He told a French newspaper, quote, The situation will remain very complicated to the end of 2023, then we'll ease a little. A top Volkswagen Group executive said last month that VW also expects shortages to continue through next year. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, we got some of these Q3 numbers. It's looking pretty good so far. Do you think we're going to start turning a corner here soon? You know, we've seen in recent months, uh, North American production has been increasing pretty steadily, kind of getting closer to uh, maybe natural demand. The big question for me now is really how much pent up demand is left over. You know, a few months back, we would have thought there were some number of millions of vehicles that people were just waiting to buy and didn't have the chance. Now that interest rates are getting higher and inflation has stayed high across the board, we'll see how much pent up demand is still out there. That's a good point. Coming up, we'll hear from Ford's recently retired Chief Industrial Platform Officer, Hao Tai Tang, who has played a pivotal role in the automaker's transformation. That's next on Daily Drive. Hi, I'm Pete Bigelow, host of Shift, a podcast about mobility from Automotive News. Each week, I bring you a conversation with leaders who are on the cutting edge of transportation, like this one with consultant and strategist Salika Josiah Talbot. The technologists are forcing themselves in a space that they shouldn't be. And I think the social scientists and politicians are falling down on the job. To hear more about the new technology and policy reshaping the way people and goods move around, join me on Shift. New episodes each Sunday on autonews.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. How Titang might not be a household name, but few other auto executives have played bigger behind-the-scenes roles in recent years. The Vietnamese immigrant who was raised in New York joined Ford in 1988 out of college. Titang rose to prominence as chief engineer of the fifth-generation Mustang, which went into production in late 2004. Most recently, as Ford's chief industrial platform officer, he helped spearhead development of the Bronco, Maverick, and Mustang Mach-E, while also working as Ford's top supplier liaison. At age 57, Titang retired last week. Our own Michael Martinez spoke with him on his last day. It was not only Titang's final interview on the job, it turned out to be his last official act with Ford before retiring. Here's their conversation. I'm just curious, why now? Why retire now? Yeah, well, it's been uh, almost 35 years. I joined Ford straight out of college um, and uh, the last 10 years as a corporate officer. So it's been a really good run. As you can imagine, serving a company the size of Ford at the officer level, it's it's demanding. It's, it's an all-consuming job and um, it's never easy in our business to decide like, when is a good time to go because of the nature of, you know, each product is three years out and they super, they're all staggered. And, and um, but Jim and I talked about sort of what's the right timing, uh, given the transition that's happening. And for me, coming off the heels of all the product launches that we rolled out over the last, you know, 18, 24 months, starting with F-150, then we did. Maki and uh, Bronco, Bronco Sport, Maverick, Lightning, culminating most recently with uh, the seventh generation Mustang and now Super Duty. It just felt like the right time. And uh, I'm uh, looking forward to being able to spend more time with my family. Um, my girls are 
becoming young adults. And it's probably too much of a stretch to say that they think their dad's cool, but you know, at least they find me more useful now as they move into their own apartments and stuff. So yeah, looking forward to just having, having a different relationship with them and being able to do some of the things that frankly, I've had to defer given the, the workload for the last, you know, few years. I think there's always a perception or, or speculation when somebody, you know, with your age and, and your abilities and, and your title uh, leaves that was it their decision, but it sounds like this was, I mean, was there any type of reason other than that for, for your departure? You no, know, uh, Jim and I talked and we agreed, you know, he, he knows this transformation is going to take multiple years. He's looking for that commitment to stay through that. And uh, like I said, it was just a good decision, mutual decision, good work-life balance uh, decision for me. And uh, yeah, you know, obviously given we announced it in July, the, the plan behind me wasn't announced until like a week ago. So it, it wasn't like there was something in place and he was, you know, looking to make a move. It was something that we, we tried to work through together and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to serve and to help Jim think through the succession plan. Let's talk about the supply chain side for a minute. You guys have gone through some challenges uh, like the rest of the industry has, right? It's not necessarily unique to Ford. Is there anything specifically that Ford, you know, could have done better? Or can you point to maybe an example or two of something that you said, man, yeah, I, I wish. I, I think hindsight's twenty twenty. I would say that this is a very complex, multifaceted problem. There is no silver bullet answers. I, I hear people who I'll call them like armchair supply chain experts now say things like it would be easy if all the OEMs made their own chips or, you know, uh, why don't you guys just stockpile three months worth of chips? And obviously when there's a global structural imbalance between supply and demand, it's hard to even secure enough supply to the stockpile. On average, we use over a thousand uh, integrated circuit components on a product like an F-150, a thousand, and expands across a broad spectrum of technology nodes in terms of, uh, you know, measured by uh, nanometers in terms of size. So uh, it would be virtually impossible and just cost prohibitive in terms of capital requirements away for factories you know, a couple of billion dollars of capital investment for any any OEM to completely vertically integrate. So I think the way we're thinking about it is we have to segment the IC usage in a vehicle into broad bins, which ones are really truly commodities, um, which ones are very bespoke to Ford and our brand differentiating. So it's something that controls an ADAS, uh, you know, compute module that's somewhat unique and specified to Ford. And then there's a bunch in between. And um, for the ones that are commoditized, we're going to have to look at things like having multiple sources to you know, protect supply, uh, having signed purchase agreements with guarantee supply contracts. On the things that are very specific to Ford and unique and brand differentiating, we're going to have to work directly with those chip manufacturers and specify the performance requirements, secure the supplies, and then go to our tier one partners and say, hey, we need you to use this compute module because it's unique to Ford. And we, Ford is the OEM, we've already locked in that supply and, um, you know, we need you to use it. So, and then there's everything in between. That's kind of the way we're thinking through it. Semiconductors are just 
one example, right? It's a capital intensive commodity. It has a cross industry demand. Um, it's also very long lead times. When you start, if you start the clock when a wafer is manufactured to when a completed module shows up in an OEM plant, it's, it's about 26 weeks. So you're looking at, you know, uh, more than six months of lead time. Um, so one of the things we're doing as part of our supply chain efforts is going through and saying, what other commodities have the same risk profile, meaning ca high capital intensity, global cross industry demand, long lead times. And what have we learned from the chip crisis that we can use to manage those uh, commodities with similar risk profiles? And that all that work is underway. You kind of touched on that in, in your last answer, but looking ahead, right? Ford's looking for a, a global supply chain officer. It seems like they're going to try to revamp um, you know, that side of the business a bit. In, in your opinion, what's going to be the biggest driver of success or, or failure for the person in that role for you know Ford's entire supply chain uh, management team? Yeah, I, I think for me, there are a couple of foundational things. One is you know the recognition that having really strong, um, positive relationships with our suppliers is, is foundational to our success. Um, you know, we know we're in a very cyclical industry. Um, when, when the industry demand is strong and the SAR is high, everybody does well, you know, the OEMs and the suppliers, when the industry uh, demand is down, you know, we all struggle. And when, when the, I'll call it, when the performance of the supply base and the OEMs move together, yeah, there's usually, um, you know, um, no issues. It's this past couple of years have been sort of strange in that the SAR has been lower because of production constraints. So the suppliers are, are able, you know, selling fewer components and you have high uh, inflation, but the OEMs are doing relatively well because of pricing their ability to price. And so that, that creates this little bit of an imbalance where the OEMs are doing better than the supply base. And it's, that's just an example of where when that happens, it's atypical and we have to make sure we, you know, don't lose sight of the, the need for our suppliers to also perform and do well. So that's one really important lesson. And then the other thing that Jim Farley has been really challenging us to do is spend more time on the upfront. Uh, he calls it the development side of uh, supply chain development of really looking at our sourcing approach, looking at um, how many suppliers we work with, trying to find who are those long-term strategic partners, how do we build, you know, win-win long-term relationships with those. And then the, the long tail of the suppliers that we do business with that um, are not as strategic, um, you know, how do we start to rationalize and restructure some of that so that we reduce the work intensity. We allow all of our partners to have really good scale and good utilization. And we eliminate some of the quality and execution risk. Early on when I, I started covering the beat, I listened to your, your Charlie Rose interview for the, the Mustang launch at the time. And it was such a, a tremendous story about, you know, your childhood and, and escaping Vietnam and everything. And, and <laughs> you know, such a great story there. And I'm just wondering if, if you ever kind of sit back and reflect um, not only on your career, but your life, you know, everything you've been able to accomplish to get to the point you are now. Yeah, Mike, it's been 
It's a great country, right? Where there are very few places in the world where you can come with, you know, literally nothing to close on your back and through um, the sheer power of, you know, hard work, uh, getting a good public school education. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm a product of the New York City public school system. Um, that you can have this kind of success. And so I think it's a testament to America and to our educational economic system and the chance to go work at a public company and have the success that I've been able to have. So I, I feel very fortunate. I know it's not unique. There are lots of people and many people that I work with, you, you know, about the Shad Khans of the world or the Ambassador Ghaffaris. There's plenty of people that have come here and uh, you know, been very successful. And I think it's, again, it's just a great testament to what a wonderful country this is. So is this 100% the end you're done? Could we see you back in a couple of years somewhere? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I wouldn't hold my breath. I, I, you know, my wife and I were both immigrant kids. We uh, live well below our means. We won't have any um, concerns about having uh, enough money to, you know, live comfortably. So I, I told her that I'm gonna we're gonna try to um, stretch out the vacation phase of retirement for as long as we can. Um, she's already, you know, citing the Tom Brady, Giselle Bunchen, you know, challenges and saying this is what happens when you renege on retirement. Um, so, <laughs> um, if I get bored, I may do some things just to stay mentally engaged. But it'll be in a you know board advisory. Uh, capacity. I'm, I'm not looking forward to going back to working 80 hours a week. That's, you know, if I wanted to do that, I would stay at Ford, right? I, uh, I wouldn't want to do that anywhere else. How Titang recently retired as Ford's chief industrial platform officer. He spoke with our own Michael Martinez. You can find Mike's full write-up about his conversation with Titang and Howe's 35-year career with Ford in our latest print edition of Automotive News or on autonews.com. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on executive moves, third quarter sales results, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with Hyundai Canada CEO Don Romano about the agency model for automotive retail and why he thinks it can be a good option for competing with newer brands like Tesla. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.